I titled the sermon today, Oh, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Oh, How the Mighty Have Fallen. And uh, I draw that uh, in, in part from the prayer of Mary. It's really the song of Mary in Luke chapter 1. We're going to land there and consider some of her words. I actually think that as she glorified God, when she learned that she had been um, chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, she broke into song, okay? And as that took place, I think that there may have been an echo of these words that we're covering today, an echo of Nahum in her song. And so we're going to land there today, um, and that's where the sermon title really roots itself. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Let's begin now uh, in Nineveh. We're, we're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 today, but I want to remind you um, that Nineveh is target. Just in case you missed last week, God has pronounced judgment on Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. He is going to absolutely squash this empire. And uh, today we're going to see a number of reasons why. Uh, but um, they discovered Nineveh in mid-1850s, 1846, somewhere in there. Uh, it was lost for uh, 2,500 years or so. I mean, they would, no one knew where it was. It was buried. And uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy was very much in view. So an artist, uh, after they began to excavate and discover it, an artist kind of put some, some ideas of what it may have looked like in all its glory and grandeur. This was painted in 1856, I believe. And uh, so there you have a little example. This is the, uh, the let's see, Tigris, Tigris River here flowing on the west side of the city. Um, Mosul, modern-day Mosul, Iraq, would be over here on, on this side today. So um, that gives you a bit of a feel for where we're at. Um, the pronouncement last week was destruction, total dest- annihilation. And now we're going to get into some of the specifics of the vision that God has given Nahum. So first point here, uh, I'm going to be covering, note this, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I want to put these together because it's in these verses that we see the reasons for judgment. Why is God going to squash Nineveh and do these things um, in his just retribution? Well, the answers are found in these verses. So let's begin. The scatterer has come, Nahum writes. He has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Isn't it amazing? God announces before he comes, I'm coming, I'm coming, I am going to destroy you. Strengthen yourself, prepare for battle, do whatever you want to do. It won't matter. The scatterer has come. Now I capitalize this because I believe here that um, although the, uh, the scatterer may be understood in history by historians as uh, these the, kind of this coalition of Medes, Babylonians, and Scythians, um, led primarily by the Medes, um, we know that this is actually the Lord. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is the one who is bringing these to accomplish His will. He indeed is the scatterer who is coming to Nineveh. Listen to how the the next verse goes. This is why I would say that. For the Lord, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So 
God is saying, I am going to act, I am coming, and this is, this is my hand at work. I'm going to accomplish your destruction through the hand of these people, but really, it is my hand. Reasons for judgment? Well, here's the first one. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob that you, Assyria, have squashed and plundered and pummeled them. You have, you have had a heavy hand upon my people, and now it's time for you to answer for it. And so the Lord comes. He comes up for battle. The Lord of the armies of heaven. Now, whenever you see in those verses um, the Lord of hosts, right? The Lord of hosts, that is uh, Lord Sabaoth. We just sang that in Martin Luther's um, a mighty fortress, right? Lord Sabaoth. It means he is the, uh, the commander of the armies of the Lord, as it were. The, the, the God who commands angel armies, myriads of warriors, angelic warriors. So if there's ever a commander who's impressed with his forces, if he were ever to get a glimpse of the Lord as commander of the armies of heaven he would immediately not be impressed with his forces. Okay, These are angelic warriors. You know what happens when an angel appears, right? Before seeing anyone, what do they do? They fall flat on their face like a dead man. They are scared to death. That These are fierce warriors of truth and light of the Lord himself. Does he need angel armies? No, no. He delights to use and show strength through them, and he commands them at will. He is restoring the majesty of Jacob. Judgment and consequence. One of the things you've got to remember when you read through verses that are coming our way here, <laughs> as hard as they are to read and consider, you've got to understand that these are consequences that are brought by the Lord. These are consequences that come from specific decisions of sin and rebellion and horrific uh, uh, acts of violence. And, and I'm not going to get in. Some, some of the guys I've read and listened to got into all of the things the Assyrians had done, and it, it'll turn your stomach, right? It's Hitler-like stuff, okay? Think uh, modern-day, I don't know, uh, ISIS. So th this is a, a terrorist-like empire that has had unbridled success judgment and consequence the day of of reckoning has come woe to the bloody city nahum writes all full of lies and plunder no end to the prey the crack of the whip the rumble of the wheel the gallop galloping horse and bounding chariot horsemen charging Flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Okay, so Nahum breaks in here and pronounces a woe against Nineveh. He calls it the bloody city full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. They go wherever they want. They take whatever they want. They kill wherever they want. But that's coming to an end. And then he breaks into this poetry, which is it's actually quite eloquent poetry. It's just uh, 
It's the poetry of destruction, right? I mean, it's, it's weird because this is eloquent, and yet it's not the kind of poetry you sit around at night and be like, hey, I got a poem I want to share with you guys. <laughs> it comes from the Bible. Let's just do this, you know? It, it's not like King David here. This is, this is heaps of corpses and bodies everywhere and, and death and destruction. The bloody city, overwhelming brutality and violence, um, Assyria was known for this. Their kings were known for humiliating those whom they had conquered and committing horrific acts of violence that would inspire fear against anyone who would rise up. Well, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'll steer clear. And if they show up at my gate and they say surrender, guess what comes long before I see their faces? The stories of their atrocities and the things that they do to enemies who fight them. And so they rolled over their prey. Brutality and violence. It goes on to say they're, they're, they're full of lies and plunder. Why would he say that? The Lord is accusing here. These are reasons for retribution. He said, you're full of lies in Nineveh. Your kings, your nobles, your military, they lie. One of the things that happened often is Assyria would come up against the city and they would send a messenger and he would say, hey, listen, you guys let us in. We're going to take good care of you. Everything's going to be great. So the gates open and all hell breaks loose. They don't keep their word. It's lies and plunder. I'll give you an example of this when they tried to lay siege to Jerusalem. Listen to what they say. The messenger comes. He says, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is Sennacherib, says the king. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. That's Judah's king. For he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria. Do you hear the language there? Thus says he mocks God in his lies. Make your peace with me and come out to me. He goes on, then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each will have his own fig tree and, and drink of the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. <laughs> this is... This is great. A land of grain and wine, of, of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Well, that sounds pretty appealing. When faced with the kind of death you would have at the hand of the Assyrians, this, he paints a pretty rosy picture, doesn't he? Lies. These are lies. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you. He, so then, one of the interesting things about liars is they accuse truth-tellers of lying, right? That's, that's a double toxic combo here. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. And then he says this in mockery of God. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Your God is like all of the other puny gods that we have crushed. You have no hope. Your only option is surrender. Well, we know how the story went. Hezekiah prayed. Isaiah prophesied. And our King Jesus 
went out that night and struck down 185,000 Assyrians, dead bodies everywhere, stumbling over corpses in the morning. And that army went home. Full of lies and plunder, that's an accurate judgment upon Nineveh. He goes on, Nahum writes, and all this for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms. What an what a poetic combination of words. Graceful and of deadly charms. Who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Listen to this pronouncement. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. He speaks now figuratively of the shame and the, and the uh, embarrassment of their defeat. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Is anyone going to be sorry? Oh, Nineveh fell. It's so bad. Oh, so sad. No, because of what they have been doing all over the known world. People will cheer and celebrate the defeat of an evil empire. These are pretty intense words, aren't they? You know, God is not a pacifist. We've got to just get that clear in our minds. God is not a pacifist. He does not look upon offenses and say, well, you know, I probably didn't mean to do that. Or, you know, let's just, let's just give him an olive branch and hope for the best and let evil go on unchecked. No. There is a time for peace, yes. There is a time for forgiveness and mercy, absolutely there is. And there is a time for war. There is a time to tread the winepress of the wrath, of the fury of God. And that is the glory of God as well, as we saw last week. An evil and idolatrous Assyrian empire, God pronounces this. Can you even imagine what it would be like to receive a prophecy like this and hear in no uncertain terms, Behold, I am against you. So as one person was saying as I was studying this week, they said, this is the opposite of, of what we pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. Right? The Lord causes His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is the Lord curse you and destroy you. The Lord lift up his big foot and stomp you into the dust. And on and on. This is the last thing anyone would ever want to hear. It is the sound of inevitability. It is doom and it is sure and it's coming. Now, visions of the fall. Here's a a little glimpse into the battle scene. Back to chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Okay, visions of the fall. The shield of his mighty men is red. This is the invading army. And I believe Nahum has been given glimpses here now of, uh, of like he, 
he, he sees the scene unfolding of all of these armies coming up against Nineveh with victory. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Is that red uh, in, in cloth or is that red because of blood? We don't know. But it's red. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro in the squares, uh, through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Isn't it amazing what Nahum has been given opportunity to, to see, and then he's writing a book of these things. He remembers his officers. This is the commanding um, leader, the king. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. Now, someone's saying they stumble over the dead, that they are slain, or they're so excited that they, they stumble. They're just like, let me at them. Whatever it is, it's not a, a weakness in the stumbling. It's an attack, an offensive success. They go hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. Now, more on that in a second. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, Nahum writes. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. How was it that the Medes, the Babylonians, and the Scythians breached such an impenetrable fortress? How did they do it? Well, there's a lot of speculation about this, but I think it has a lot to do with this, this water. There's water all around Nineveh, right? You've got the Tigris on one side and at least two different rivers and canals coming from all over. And one of the things you do if you live in Iraq is, right, you want water, what a desolate place. So water causes all of the green and the flourishing, and, and, uh, and so you can be cool on hot days. It was the water, I believe, that was the likely downfall, the mechanism by which the siege succeeded. Some speculate that they backed up the rivers and stored them up and then cut them loose, and it was the force of the water that indeed pushed down the walls and blew open the gates or that they, they re diverted the waters, whatever it was, they were able to get in. And it was water that was a part of the destruction, somehow or another, of the city of Nineveh. We'll see that again in some verses to come. Reminded of Job chapter 12, when Job says, rightly, with God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. He makes nations great. Let me say this again. He, he makes nations great. When we vote for a president, don't fall for the wimpy, fleeting hope that would ever pin on any one man. He is one small, insignificant ant before the God who raises up nations. It is God who makes nations great. 
The leader that honors him knows this well. He makes nations great and he destroys them. God does this. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. These are words that ring true of the fate of the Assyrian Empire. Now let's go to the song. Right in the middle of this prophecy, Nahum begins, again, he's a poet-prophet. He breaks into this song, but it's, it's, it's a weird song. It's not the kind of song you open the church service with, okay? This is an ominous song. It's like definitely minor key, you know, kind of the, 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 the scary, ominous, tension-building song, but it's also a song of taunt. Okay, now, sometimes we struggle to, to conceive of how God can speak this way, but there are verses here in your Bible where God is taunting the pride of man and his enemies, those who would seek to rebel against him and rise up as if somehow they could stand against him. Psalm 2 he laughs. He holds them in derision. In Nahum 2, he sings a taunting song over the arrogance of an evil empire. Listen to these verses. Desolate, desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his young cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Do you see this? This is maybe a little similar to the way that Job was confronted by God. Where were you, Job? Where were you? Why don't you tell me? Why don't you in your wisdom instruct me? the one who laid the foundations of the earth, right? This is a, a, an addressing of arrogance and pride, the pride of Assyria. Speaks of the lion's den, and that's a pretty accurate assessment. I mean, the, Nineveh was the lion's den. The consolidation of power, the triumph of all the military victories from the known world, it all kind of came to its fullest, most potent experience in Nineveh, the lion's den. This is where the king had safety. He let his guard down. His kids ran and played. His empire was safe and secure behind the walls, right? No cause for fear, no concern here. It was an illusion of safety and security because God says, behold, I am against you. I'm against you, and I'm coming. He goes on and he repeats this pronouncement. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. Don't miss this. This is direct action through the, uh, the, the swords and the fire and the torches of those attackers, okay? I will burn your chariots, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. You think of all the messengers, right? The guy that stood and, and, and mocked the Israelite soldiers in Jerusalem. Think of all the messengers that had success. 
Thus says the king of Israel, or the, the, the king of Assyria, surrender. No more of that. No more. This is a reference to how we left off last week in verse 15 of chapter 1. The beautiful feet of the one who brings good news, the messenger who announces the destruction of Nineveh. Hmm. Now, remembering Thebes, let's skip down to chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I don't know if you uh, have, have looked at Egypt recently, uh, uh, the, the Luxor Temple. We, in fact, our, our Israel tour that got canceled because of COVID, sadly, we would have been in this place already. I would have pictures from Thebes in this glorious place. Um, but the Lord had other plans, right? And He adjusted those. So I haven't been to Thebes uh, at this point. Someday maybe we'll go there when the Lord um, makes things new and, and, and we're cruising around. Um, we'll, we'll go over to Thebes and, and look at the ruins there. Remembering Thebes. Listen to these verses. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile, God says, with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. And Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You, Nineveh, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. So what's amazing about this is to consider this. Who took Thebes? What nation was it that destroyed Thebes? It was Assyria. These, this, is, this is the work of the Assyrians. Those who have the capital in Nineveh, they did this with their own hand to a fortress in Thebes that no one thought could be taken. And their military might overcame Thebes and won the victory. So the Lord points the attention back to them and says, what you did to Thebes will be done to you. You thought that Nineveh was perfect and, and, and no one could take her because you've got all the water and everything. It's going to be the water that's your downfall. Just like you took Thebes, Nineveh will fall. Okay, And I, I don't have time to show you all the pictures from Thebes, but it was impressive. Impressive. And the Assyrians squashed it. Annihilating an evil empire. We'll finish with these verses here, chapter 3, 12 through 19. Annihilating an evil empire. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. Now, just a comment on this before any of the ladies get upset. <laughs> your troops are women in your midst. In this day, women were not combat soldiers. They were there to protect the young. They were often put in places of shelter and hiding. What he's saying here is, your men are going to be hiding with the women just as much, right? It's, it's the same thing. They're going to be so overwhelmed, they're going to be fulfilling the role that the women played in that day. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Now, what does that say? I think, again, that points to water. Some incredible work of water in this attack squashed the city. 
Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water. Now listen to this. He's saying, prepare, build up, do whatever you can. Draw water for the seed. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locusts. Multiply yourselves. Go ahead. Try to build a bigger army. Multiply like the grasshopper. No amount of preparation can change God's ordained outcome. Right? So if ever there was a doomsday prepper push, it was during this period of time. They hear the prophecy, they're like, well, let's just build a bigger wall. Let's just get more soldiers. We'll train everybody. Like, we can stop this. No, you can't. No. Because the Lord has spoken. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locusts spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the, days of, in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the, mountain, on the mountains with no one to gather them. And then this is how the book finishes. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Now, you can't help but note the way the final verse of Nahum finishes with the way the final verse of Jonah finishes. Remember how Jonah finishes with a question? Shall I not? Jonah is being exhorted by God for his compassion, his choice to relent of disaster on Nineveh. He says, shall I not show compassion on those and and even on their cattle? Here, he says, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The answer is in this decision, in this display, God says, destruction. He is a God who can show compassion if he so chooses. He can stir people to repentance and he can crush them in their hard-hearted rebellion. Forty years of looming judgment. Think about this. By the time that this letter made its way probably up to Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire, there was about 40 years, maybe just a little less, between when this book was written and 612, when the destruction occurred. You've got to ask the question, what happened in those 40 years? There's no mention of repentance, no mention of of the king tearing his robes and repenting in dust and ashes and proclaiming, everybody turn from your sin. Maybe God will relent. Maybe he will show mercy to us. Maybe not a word of that. No display of repentance in view. Makes me wonder about the stories of Jonah, God's prophet. What about that? Like, wouldn't anyone be telling the story? Hey, we've been here before. We've faced this before. Remember how we repented before. Nothing of that in view. Even the 185,000, what about the stories of that? Remember when we try to take on this God? He's not like the other little gods who have these little trinkets and stuff that we tread into the dirt. No. 
This is the God who struck down our mighty men in one night as they slept. Just stop. If we lost 185,000 troops, think of the number of families in our nation that would be impacted. All of the connections, relatives, the stories. Well, what happened? This is what happened. Where are the people calling for repentance? There's no mention of this. Instead, for 40 more years, arrogance, fortification, unceasing evil, idolatry, sacrifice to Ishtar all the more. Maybe she can save us. She is a great God, right? All of the falsities, abominations, There's lessons here for our nation, friends. There are lessons here to be learned that go way beyond Assyria. Artist gave a rendering of what it may have looked like in 612, a very different look than we opened with, isn't it? The fire, the water, the coalition of armies that crushed Nineveh. It was a three-month siege. I mean... (laughs) They basically waltzed through the walls. Hardly difficult at all. Our response this morning. Listen to Mary's song. He who is mighty has done great things for me, she says. Holy is his name. Holy is his name. Look at the God that Mary worshiped. He's righteous. That's what it means. He's holy. He does right things. He's holy. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. That includes us here today. Young people, listen. His mercy is for those who fear Him. Oh, if Assyria would have turned from their sins, maybe, maybe God would have relented and shown mercy. He didn't didn't have to do it. He never has to do it. No one deserves His mercy, but, oh, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has. He has scattered. There's a word. I got stuck there on that word. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It was just over 600 years before this was written, before Mary sang this song. This is not too distant history for Mary to know. Probably a late teens, young Jewish girl, she knew her Bible. And she sings a song of worship, a song that glorifies the strength of God, the righteousness and holiness of God, His power to squash the proud and to exalt those of humble estate. She speaks of her own situation. She's from a no-name town. Who am I to be the mother of the Messiah? Worship. Worship. Hmm. So four things here. Number one, bow before the Lord in reverence and humility. It's passages like this in our Bible that should cause us to catch and pause and bow before Him. 
God's not playing games. He's not just a, a funny grandpa in the sky that you just, you just hope he doesn't get mad or, you know, it's, it's going to be. No, God is the God who takes seriously every sin committed. He sees it, he knows it, and he will judge it, and he will destroy those who continue in it. Bow before him in reverence and humility. Turn from rebellion and sin, number two. Turn from a rebellion and sin. He's a God merciful to those who fear Him. You go to war with God, you're going to lose. Everyone always loses who goes to war with God. Number three, put your trust in Jesus, the only Savior. God in His love. Whoa, the love. Oh, the love. That He would send His Son to take the place of rebels like you and me and to pay the wrath that we deserve so that we might be forgiven and brought into His family and sit at His table and enjoy His fellowship. Put your trust in Jesus. He's the only Savior from the wrath of God. This is the same old gospel message. It doesn't change. It's good news today. It'll be good news 2,000 years from now. Number four, live for the glory of the King of Kings. We have a king who reigns. His kingdom advances one repentant sinner at a time. That's the work he calls us to. Live for his glory, not for the fleeting glories of treasure and fame and riches and whatever might come into play. Just all of the fleeting pleasures of the world. Think of all the replacements. Friends, we don't make these little trinkets and idols, but oh, we have idols. Oh, we have idols. The idols of our day are everywhere. They're calling for your worship, for your focus, for your, your wonder and, and awe, and they want your heart. It can be in the form of a bike, Think of this, how silly we can worship things like mountain bikes. We can worship things like golf. I always pick on golf. I'm sorry. I, I like golf, guys. I'll lighten up on golf. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Your career. How many likes you get on Facebook when you put that post up? Right? You just fill in the blank. All the idols. The main idol that we're tempted toward is the idol of self. That there is a gospel proclaimed in churches today that sounds like this. It's all about you. That may be the most idolatrous, the most subtle, sneaky, and deadly poison. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It is all about the King of Kings. And we are to live for His glory. So, Good Shepherd, may that be true of us today. May there be no one here in this place who leaves without having these things as a heart desire and a commitment till the end. Think of this. They repented back here and then they didn't repent it's not enough to say, well, in third grade, I, I walk the aisle, and then now I live in the dark, and I love living for myself. No. If that's where you're at, you're putting your, your hope falsely in something that you experienced back there. 
It's what I believe today, and I will believe no matter what comes. That is saving faith. It's saving faith today. He holds me. I believe today. I obey today until he comes. Live for the glory of the King of Kings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message of Nahum. We thank you for the glory that you have set on display in the pages of this book. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn and apply to our own lives. Oh, Lord, even to our nation as we consider the arrogance and the pride and the rebellion and sin and the, basically the, the, the indifference to you, the God of all glory. We pray that you would use us to shine like a light in the dark. May our joy in you, Jesus, be infectious. May it draw attention to you, not to us, but to you. May you use us to further your kingdom and call more people to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We delight in you, the God of mercy and grace and compassion, the God of steadfast love who is slow to anger and abounding in love generation upon generation. We also, O oh God, we delight in you, the God of justice, the God of, of wrath, the God of retribution, the God who makes war on his enemies. We delight in you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.